Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Hey, it is great to see you today, and you braved the heat to get here to church. It's like, you know, you're inside, and then you get in your car, and then you get in, you know, it's like the places in between out in the sun like that. If you just make it from here to the car, right? And make it from the car to the house. I was in my garage yesterday for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, I'm no, no joke, no joke. I was in there, and it was like 108 degrees in the garage. I watched a dragonfly. I'm not making this up. I watched a dragonfly fly into my garage, and then he just, he just died. I mean, just, he flew in my garage and he died. And I think he thought, oh, there's shade, right? But it wasn't any better. And his little butter, his little dragonfly wings are like, and he just gave it up. And just, I mean, it's like, dude, are you okay? He's dead. So he, when insects are dying, just randomly, you know it's hot. Anyway, it's great to see you. If you have a Bible, turn to James chapter 4, and we're going to start with the second part of verse 6. That's where we're going to start. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses on the screen for you. As you're turning there, our topic today is the surprising line that divides those who get it from those who don't. Now, why am I calling it this? When I say those who get it, what I mean is those who will inherit eternal life, those who will understand what it's all about, those who, while they may struggle and suffer in this life, they will ultimately prevail. They will ultimately win. What is the line that divides people like that from people who won't get it, who may live lives of ease and comfort? may even have some great joys along the way, but ultimately will miss out on the very reason that they were created, the whole purpose of life. And they will ultimately miss out on eternity. Where is that line? What is that line? And why is it so important? Well, James gives us a clue. So as we read this, you'll see what he's talking about. He's going to start by quoting a verse out of the book of Proverbs. It would have been well known to the people that were hearing this. And so this is what he says. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we see two qualities set in opposition to each other. The first is pride, and the second is humility. So without making it too much of a mystery, when we look at the title of today's message, the line that divides those who get it from those who don't is drawn between the proud and the humble. Now we're going to name that line later on because the name of that line is really important. But for right now, know it divides two groups of people, the proud and the humble. And the reason that this line is surprising is because it's not what you would think in terms of the division when it comes to how people, you know, those who would get it and those who would not, those whom God would oppose and God would favor. So to help us understand this, I, of course, have made another drawing. However, I didn't invent this drawing, so I can't take full credit for it. I adapted it a little bit and was inspired by another drawing of this. But anyway, um, so I can't claim this as my own. But this is a drawing that uh, you see there's these lines. These lines represent strata of people, different levels of people. Up at the top, you have good people. You know, 
I don't know, like your grandma, right? Just nice, sweet people. Good people, like your grandma or, you know, hospice nurses, preschool teachers, just like good people that you think this is a good person. Then at the bottom line, down there, we have bad people. Terrorists, 49ers fans, (laughs) copy machine repairmen, people who don't turn all the way Uh, They don't go out into the intersection on the left turn, but they wait behind the crosswalk line. (laughs) I don't care where you're from. In Arizona, you go out into the intersection, and then you make a left turn. So these are people that wait behind the crosswalk, and then when it turns yellow, they gun it, and they make it, but no one else does. (laughs) These are the kinds of people that we're talking about in the bottom rung. Bad people. In the middle is where we are. This is where we like to think we are. This is the rest of us. So we're not like terrorists and the people who don't know how to turn left properly, but we're also not as good as the hospice nurses and preschool teachers and grandmas. And we kind of recognize that. Well, I'm not perfect. I'm not a saint, right? How many people say, I'm no saint, but I'm also not really bad. And so when it comes to drawing the line, we draw the line between God who accepts and who he rejects, like kind of right below us, you know? Like we're gonna barely make it. Um, it's what this is. This is religion, right? This is, this is what the average person thinks about God and religion and heaven. It's like, well, I know the bad people don't get there, and I, but I'm going to draw just just below me. And this is what most people think, but that's not the way that it works. The line, according to Scripture, according to everything written in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is actually drawn down the middle. And on one side is those who are prideful, and on the other side is those who are humble. So at the same time, you know, you might have a really bad guy at the bottom rung who gets to a place in his life where he says, hey, I'm a really bad guy. I shouldn't be this way anymore. And he humbles himself and he becomes someone who is different. He realizes that his, the path he's on is wrong and he, but he, and he humbles himself in the process. And the Bible says that God shows grace to those people. On the other side, you could have a really nice person who's a really good person, and everybody says, wow, what a good person. And they say, yeah, right? I am a good person. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm trying to brag. It's just, I mean, compared to everybody else, I mean, look at me. I follow all the rules. I really don't do a whole lot of things. I mean, yeah, I mess up once in a while, but I actually give a lot back to the community. I'm a good person. Everybody goes, they're a good person. They say, yeah. Well, that person, according to scripture, is proud, and God opposes that person. So the line is not drawn, and the verse does not say that God opposes the bad and gives grace to the good. No, he opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So what is pride anyway? We should define it. Is it merely confidence? Are we supposed to not be confident then in our abilities? Is it like just about, well, I I should just walk around my shoulders slumped like, no, I just suck at everything, you know, and then God will like that? Is that really what we're talking about? Is it we're talking about a bunch of people who never assert themselves, who never live with a sense of accomplishment about their family or the things that they're good at, or they don't develop their skills and abilities and take positions of leadership? No, we're not talking about that at all. In fact, I would say that if anything, God wants those who believe in him, who are who he calls to be in positions of leadership and to attempt big things and to have a sense of confidence in who God's made them to be. So I don't think that we're talking about that per se. So when we talk about pride, what do we mean? Well, I would define pride this way from what we can see in the scripture, and that is this. 
independence from God. The pride is really the act of declaring independence from God. So you basically look at God and you say, you know what, whether you God, you exist or not, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Regardless, it's not important because I don't need you to forgive me of sin. I don't need you for any kind of wisdom or counsel. I don't need you to really help me. It's okay, God. I got it. I will make my own rules. Thank you very much. That is the essence of pride. In fact, the word pride, as it's used here, means arrogance in the original Greek language. Now, the reason I bring that up is because that same word in the Greek language was used of a Greek, in a Greek mythology story about a guy named Salmoneus, not to be confused with Salmonella, that will get you sick. This guy's name was Salmoneus. And in Greek mythology, he was a king of a little village who wanted to be called Zeus. He wanted his subjects to call him Zeus, who, and Zeus, by the way, is the king of the gods in Greek mythology. He was also the god of thunder, not to be confused with Thor, because you guys, no, Thor's the god of thunder. In the Norse mythology, Thor is the god of thunder. In the Greek mythology, Zeus is the god of thunder. So this guy, Sal, Salma, not Salmoneus, Salmoneus, <laughs> Salmoneus, built a bridge out of brass and he ran his chariot over it very fast. And as he did, the wheels uh, hitting the brass made the sound of thunder. And so he simulated the sound of thunder and said, see, I can make thunder just like Zeus. You don't need Zeus. You can just bow down and worship me and call me Zeus. I will replace him. Of course, Zeus hears about this. He is not very happy. And so he, in a wonderful twist of irony and fate, decides to strike down Salmoneus with nothing other than a thunderbolt. I'll show you. Kills him and destroys the town. That's the story. But the Greeks were onto something with this story because they identified pride not merely as arrogance, but also as a departure from where one belongs in the universe. In other words, you, you begin to operate outside of your rightful place. You're too big for your proverbial britches. Or as the great line from Top Gun says, which they're making a remake of, by the way, your ego's writing checks that your body can't cash. That's a great line. I hope they include that in the new movie as well. But anyway, this is the kind of pride that we're talking about. The kind of thing that where you are out of sync with nature. So not only is it independent of God, but it's independent of God's creation. You are declaring independence of, from God and how he has made the world. And so you say, I will do things my way. So that's why every sin has as its root pride, because it's a declaration of independence, not only from God, but from the way he has ordered the world. And the idea is that I can actually get away with it. That's different, by the way, from boldly going where no man has gone before and stretching the limits of nature. For example, when, you know, now they're talking about the idea of going back to the moon. And some people might say, well, you know, going to the moon, what kind of hubris and arrogance is that to think that, you know, that we could do something like that? And a lot of people would think that at the time. But actually, if you're going to go to the moon, you, you have to humble yourself, you know, in a sense, because you have to say, I have to go within, work within the laws of nature. 
I have to operate within the laws of nature because if I violate the laws of nature, I will die. But if I can harness nature, if I can understand nature, if I can discover how the laws of physics work, there is a possibility that we could do it. And so the, so the, the attempt to go to the moon, or anything else for that matter, is actually a process of humility subjecting oneself to the way the world works. It's not pride in that sense. So where is the root of pride? Where do we find it? Where does it start? Where does it come from? Well, again, it's interesting to me that right after he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, he also then says, submit to God, and then he says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil. Well, what does the devil have to do with pride? Well, in short, everything. Everything. In fact, the whole sin of pride originates from Satan himself. In fact, that's how he became Satan. The Bible indicates that Satan used to be a beautiful angel and likely sometime around the creation of the world, we don't really know when, exactly, there's speculation. But at some time at that point, he kind of rebelled against God by basically committing the same sin of Salmoneus, basically, and saying, I can replace you, God. And the scripture kind of gives us windows and insights. And it's very interesting how it works because the Old Testament kind of has these prophecies where they might be prophesying about a king, about the fall of a king, but the language is so broad and it goes so far beyond a, a, a certain individual that a lot of people say, no, he's referring to that person, but also the larger issue. Also, um, there's the heavenly beings, there's heavenly issues, eternal issues going on behind this one worldly issue. So we see these little windows. They're saying, hey, listen, this clearly is talking about Satan. And it's very interesting. So you look at Isaiah chapter 14, it says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Do you hear the rebellion and the defiance bleeding through the words, I will, I will do this. He continues in Ezekiel in a different way. You are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Your heart, check this out, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. So pride is Satan's signature sin. And he doesn't need you to believe in him or acknowledge him or worship him like, you know, in some den somewhere, you know, with pentagrams and sacrificing goats and doing weird ritualistic chants and all that kind of stuff. That's not his goal. In fact, he doesn't even care if you believe in him or not. He just wants you to be like him in a sense of declaring your independence from God the way that he did. It's very simple. And this is, oh, and by the way, if, if you look at, it's even the demons follow suit. So in the New Testament, it talks about this in the book of Jude. It says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So what happens? They left the place where they belong. 
They're no longer content to operate within the rules of nature and the place that they were created to occupy and fit. And that's what happened. So pride is, is, is about all of that. In fact, the first sin ever committed by human beings was motivated by Satan and centered on pride. Satan told Eve, what? Eat the fruit and you will be like God. It's like, cool. You no longer need to be merely a creation. You can take the place of the creator. And the problem with pride is that when you feel, and we've all felt it. I mean, the kind of pride that we're talking about, this independence from God, is at the moment, you, it, it's very deceptive, but it feels so good because you're like, yeah, I am in control of my own life. I don't need anyone or anything. God, I'm telling you what to do. I make my own decisions. And it's this rush of not just merely autonomy or agency, but it's I have authority over everything in my life. And yet it's just flat out not true. But in the moment, it feels so true and so good and so right. I find it interesting that an entire movement that says when it comes to your gender and sexuality, that now what they're saying is you can separate yourself from nature. Your nature means nothing. Your biology means nothing when it comes to how you want to be referred. If you, are, if you are born a male and you want to be a female, just simply say you want to be a female and demand that people use those pronouns or you will take them to court. You, can, you, you, you have said, I can do whatever I want with whomever I want, whenever I want, as long as it's right for me, regardless of what nature says about me, or regardless of any other laws or mores or customs that may be in place. Now, I'm not talking about people who, who fight these impulses or deal with impulses of same-sex attraction or like you know, trans, or transgender issues or gender confusion. There's a lot of people, maybe there's some people right here in this room who this is a struggle for you. You struggle with same-sex attraction. You struggle with, with like, I don't know, I'm, I'm confused about my gender. I feel these weird things. And, and it's, a, it's a battle that you fight and you fight it alone. And it's difficult. And my heart goes out to you. And I've said that many times from this platform. I said, if that's your struggle, my heart goes out to you because issues of gender and sexuality are at the core of who we are as people. So I'm not talking about that. I am talking about the campaign that has been launched in our culture that says, yes, you go with it. You be you, do whatever you want, free yourself with whomever you want, however you want. And I just find it fascinating that the can this campaign has chosen as the one word it's going to use to galvanize and unite that entire philosophy of independence from nature, that entire philosophy of free to do whatever you want with whomever you want, just simply because you're the one that makes the rules. I find it fascinating that the one word of all the thousands of words available in the English language that they could have chosen to represent this campaign is the word pride. At least they got that one right. Yeah, you nailed it. It is pride. It is pride. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He doesn't oppose the bad and give grace to the good. So if pride is independence, 
from God, then what is humility? Well, it's pretty obvious what humility is. Then humility is what I'm going to call an awakening of dependence on God for everything. So it's not just simply an opposite. It's, it's actually involved with like, it's an awakening. It's a realizing, it's an understanding. And the reason why that's important is because we don't come to that conclusion on our own. It's not automatic. We're not born with it. So where pride says I can move out of my rightful place as a creation of God living under a creator, humility looks at the world properly. Very important. Humility just simply sees the world as it really is and says, no, there is a God above me. There are realities outside of me. There is truth beyond me. And I cannot make up what those things are. I must subject myself to them. That is humility. Humility is an awareness that I cannot get through this life without the touch of God, the grace of God, the truth of God, the life of God, and the breath of God breathing in through me. That without him I am lost. And that is not a pipe dream or a mirage or an illusion. It is a statement of actual fact and reality. And by the way, it's borne out every single day on this planet. Because when you live independent of God, you run up against the way the world works. And it's brutal. So what is the process of moving from pride to humility? Because we talked about this before, you know, there's, the, there's, because we all start off in this place of pride. And we have to get to this place of humility. What does that look like? Well, the one word that bridges that gap the one word that really represents that line is the word repentance. Let's read about what he says. He says, draw near to God, in verse 8, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, this is really heavy stuff, right? Because you read this, you're going, man, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and weep, and, you know, mourn. And it's like, man, I'm not inviting this guy over to my house for a barbecue anytime soon, you know? You know, it's like, here, here's a burger. Weep, man! And I was like, this is kind of awkward, you know? I don't want to introduce you to my friends, because they're going to think I'm, that, you know, I'm weird but hanging out with you. So what is this guy doing? What, what is he all, like, upset about? Well, what's he's, what he's doing is he's outlining the process of repentance, the path from pride to humility, the, the distant, the difference there, the, the, what, the, what the breakthrough has to be is that breakthrough of repentance. So that is the dividing line between those who get it and those who don't. The key factor beyond merely whether you think a person is good or bad is repentance. So what is repentance? Well, let me define it this way. It is simply sorrow over sin and a sincere desire to change. It's, it's actual sorrow over sin. So you see, you, all of a sudden you're awakened, right? Because humility is an awakening. And that awakening is repentance. And so what happens is you're awakened to the fact that God, you kind of thought that like you were here and God was here. You're like, you're pretty good and God's, you know, he's better, but you know, whatever. All of a sudden you realize the holiness of God, the beauty of God, the goodness of God, the power and majesty of God. And you go, dude, I have some problems. And you didn't realize the depth of your own sin walking away from God. Now that distance that distance is sorrow because you realize how far you've fallen. Now, why is that important? 
See, every person needs to go through some, at some point in your life, if you're, if you're going to actually be called a Christian, the path to Christianity, there is a point in your life where you realize who you really are. And the Bible says very clearly that apart from God, we really are kind of like what you would call wretched people. You know? And this concerns me. I tell you this concerns me. Because I know people that will say, well, yeah, um, I was born Christian. And I go, like, I was born born part Lithuanian and part Australian. It's true. My grandmother was a war bride from Australia. She came over and so, but I'm not, I don't, last time I checked, Christianity isn't an ethnic group, right? It's a, it's a movement of God in the world. So it's not like being Latin American or African American or whatever you want to call yourself. It's like you, it's, it's not like you weren't born Christian. You're actually, you and I were born separated from God. You No offense, but when she came out of the womb, you know, like Gabe on the guitar singing praises, like, <laughs> that probably didn't happen. So you actually, you were born and, and you were, I mean, you're, I'm sure you were a cute baby, you know, but you're like a wretched sinner too. Because the first word you learned was probably like mine and stop and, you know, no one had to teach you those words, right? You just learned them on your own. And you, you know, so it's like, even though you had little babies now, I'm sure you have cute little babies. I'm sure the babies are very cute, okay? But let's be honest, right? Right behind that cute little face is a little terror, right? I want food now! Right? You think you're gonna have a nice romantic evening? I'll show you, right? That's what they do. Because it's all about them. I'm sorry, babies are cute, but it's all about them. They know it, it's all about me. It is. Then what happens? You grow to a certain point where you go, well, maybe it's not all about me. And when you get to that point, there's usually a some sense of sorrow because you've been living as though it was. You've been living as though you can bend and change the rules of nature and you can actually switch places with God. And you realize that was wrong. So I, I get worried, I get worried when a person says, oh, I've always been a Christian. Really? So you never, you can't think of a time when you were living in opposition to God. Never. No. Hmm, that worries me. I'm not sure you quite understand what we mean here because the message of Christianity is God saves people. And if God saves people, that means they are in need of saving and that includes you. So somewhere along the line, there needs to be a recognition that holy cow, I need to be rescued by God bad. So what he says is, he says, so these commands, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your heart. This is a sincere plea to repent, to get to the place where you acknowledge nothing more than what is actually true about you, that you've declared independence from God and you've got to come back. So that's why the humility is an awakening, right? So if you go back to the drawing, that's, that's, the, that's the whole thing. Everyone needs, to, everyone needs to do this. The act of repentance is ubiquitous. Everybody needs to do this at some point in their life. There isn't a person alive who, who can avoid it. So he goes on to say, be wretched, which literally means, it's kind of funny, it means feel miserable. Feel miserable! Why does he say that? Because he talks about mourning and everything else. Turning your joy to mourning. Now, joy in the Old Testament, or I'm sorry, joy, uh, laughter. Laughter in the Old Testament. Because he was talking to Jewish Christians that would have known the Old Testament very well. So when he says laughter, he doesn't mean you're not supposed to laugh. See, this is why Christians are so, you know, un, they're not great to be around because it says, you know, turn your laughter into more. He's not saying you shouldn't ever laugh or have joy. But laughter in the Old Testament is often associated with the laughter of fools. In other words, this kind of laughter that says, I don't have a care in the world. It doesn't matter. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Who cares? I'm not going to think about tomorrow. 
And so this is the kind of laugh. He says, you don't, don't do that. You have to, you have to like realize that there's a serious thing going on here. Because if you don't mourn now, you will mourn later. So he's not saying this to be mean to them. He's saying it to reach out to them as a plea because he loves them. He's saying, listen, mourn now over sin. Realize the depth of your sin so you can realize the grace of your Savior. Because if you don't do that now, you're going to go through your life thinking you're fine. And then you're going to die. And you're going to stand before God going, well, bring it on, God. I was a good person. You know I was. Where's my castle? Come on, better be a good one. And God's going to be like, bruh, what happened? You missed the boat, baby. Where did you, right, what, what about the Bible did you not understand? Okay, that's good. So, and then you will spend eternity mourning. And that's a real thing. That is a real thing. You will spend an eternity in regret, in regret and mourning saying, I am such a stupid idiot. Why did I spend my entire life thinking that I was so righteous and good and I didn't need God then? And you'll have all of eternity to think about the answer to that question. That's not a good place. So he's saying, don't be like that. I want you to understand now the depth of your, of your sin so you can have that godly sorrow, so you can have that purifying sorrow that comes from that broken spirit that says, God, you know what? I, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to offer you but just this broken person who trusts you. I need your grace. I need the blood of Jesus to cover my sins or I'm a goner. I don't care who you are or what you've done, but if that's your prayer and that's your posture, that's your approach to God, God, I got nothing for you. I know my heart. If that's you, I have great hope for you. I have great hope for you. But if you're a nice person who does their taxes and, you know, puts a little flag out on all the holidays and, you know, and just kind of, you know, great American, and you're like, bad news for you. So he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. So when you come to a place of humility and you say, I actually need a savior, you say, what I'm doing is not working. Yes, I can't, I can't get wasted every night and expect that to work. I can't treat my spouse like garbage and think that I'm gonna have a, a good marriage. I can't continue to make these compromises financially and kind of put money over here and, and do some things underhanded and unethical and actually think that that's going to produce any sense of goodness in the world. Like that's just, like I can somehow violate the laws. You can't do that. You can't expect yourself if you're a parent. See, the parents go, oh, you know, I'm going to come home. I'll watch some Netflix. I'll kind of do my thing. And my kids over here, I don't know what's going on with them, but hey, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're not asking them questions like, hey, what's going on between you and God? What do you believe? What do you think? What's going on in your life? How are your friends? Tell me what's going on. You, you, can't, you can't think that you're going to live your life and you don't ask your kids those questions, right? Hey, I care about what you believe. Some parents go, oh, it doesn't matter to me what they believe as long as they're sincere. That's sincerely the dumbest thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> well, you want them to grow up and be sociopaths? Well, at least they're serious about it. They believe in killing people, but it's what they really want. What kind of stupid idea? This is the thing. Well, I don't care what my kids believe as long as they're... No, you should care what your kids believe. So here's the problem. You, have, you say, well, I'm a Christian. My kids just should be watching me and learning. If you're not engaging them, if you're not pursuing them, if you're not saying, hey, talk to me. What's going on? Let's figure this out. What questions do you have? How's it going? Are you okay? And you're not actively involved. And then one day, they're like 21 years old, and they call you up, and they say they're marrying some idiot. And you're like, what happened? How did it get here? Well, what did you think was going to happen? 
Do you think they're just going to magically just follow God? And you're just, and you, the, the world was not designed that you actually as a mother or a father take an interest in them and shepherd them and watch over them? Or do you think it was just going to happen automatically? It's not the way the world works. Now I bring these things up because this is where you go, you know what, God? I actually need to humble myself and say, these are the things I'm praying for and hoping for. And I need to subject myself to your will and your way of doing things because I see that the world could work out a certain way and I'm concerned that, that things will go bad. I'm concerned about my kids. I'm concerned about this or that, but I can't just live as though it's not going to happen. So these are the kinds of things. The humble heart says, God, I realize there's realities outside of me. So what happens when God exalts you? As you humble yourself, God exalts you. What does that mean? What does it mean? Well, hey, I humbled myself. Let's take like an infomercial. You know, I humbled myself and I got a Mercedes. <laughs> if it worked for me, it can work for you. Sometimes people think, well, I got exalted. Hey, I humbled myself and I got a thousand more friends on Facebook. I was exalted. No, it doesn't happen. How does that work then? Oh, okay, I'll tell you how it works. See, what happens is, when you humble yourself, you say, God, you're God, I'm not. And I'm gonna live for you. And then what happens is, as you do that over time, we talk about this, this is the theme, this Christianity is not a hack. It is not a life hack. If you think it is, you'll be sorely disappointed. Christianity is a journey comprised of, of a lifelong series of events where you say, God, you are God, and I'm not. So I'm going to trust you, even though everyone's telling me I should go over here and do this. Okay, that's what it is. So I've, I've seen you guys in, in this congregation, I've seen you exalted. I've thought about this a lot. So over the 12 years almost that I've been here as the senior pastor of Compass Church, I've watched families grow. Scary. Little kids when I first got here. And now they're like, taller than me, I hate that. But they are. God gave me a big personality, but not a very large stature. That's okay. But anyway, I'm just working it out while I'm up here. Um, but I watched you, I've watched you grow. And I've watched as you, had, you hit problems in your life, family problems, financial problems, job problems, spiritual problems, relationship, you know, family disasters, you know. And each period of time, you know, you had a problem in your marriage, you could have walked away from your marriage, but you didn't. Or you were unemployed for a while and you could have said, I'm going to give up on God. He's not going to take care of me. Or you had some kind of health diagnosis that was bad and kind of messed up your life. You could have just said, forget it, God. I'm going to do things my own way. But you didn't. And so what I see with a lot of families in our church is not that all of a sudden they submit themselves to God and then things are easy. No, sometimes you submit yourself to God and things are hard externally. But here's what I do see. I see difficult things happening with people in our church, but I see them prevailing. I see them winning. I see joy. I see strength. I see resilience. I see wisdom. I see power. I see peace. I go, where does that come from? Where does that come from? It comes from the fact that God opposes the proud. He puts his finger in their chest. You're going to try this? We'll see what happens. But he lifts up the humble. He lifts up the ones who say, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know I need you. I'm not sure where we're going, but you're all I got. And God goes, and they look different than everyone around them. And some of you look different than everyone around you. 
And don't be surprised when the family members and friends start running to you to borrow money and to get advice on this. And why are your kids so, you know, seem to be okay? And why is it that you just seem to have it figured out and you're so lucky? Really? You're not lucky. You're not lucky. If anyone calls you lucky, you can kick them. No, don't kick them. <laughs> Say, it ain't luck, bro. I'm submitting myself to the Lord and he gives me what I need to get through the day. And amazingly, it makes me stronger. So here's what I'm asking you to do if you haven't done so already. Every single person in this room needs to come to a place of repentance. Now, maybe you've never called yourself a Christian before and you're realizing, yeah, you know what? I've been, in, I've been an idiot. I've been living as though I can make my own rules. That's really dumb. And maybe God's tapping you on the shoulder going, this guy is telling you the truth and you need to listen. And you need, you need to today, you need to turn around. You need to realize how you've been operating outside of where you belong. You've been living way beyond what you were made to live for. You were made to be a creation, not the creator. Maybe some of you have already called yourself a Christian for a long time, but there's, there's times in life where there's periods of repentance, right? Where you repent, but then all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I kind of realize I've been letting some things in. You know, I've been letting some, some other ideas, some, some other thoughts, some other drives in. I've been making little compromises here. And in a sense, I'm crucifying Jesus all over again because he still died for all those sins. I'm just driving those nails right in. I'm driving those nails right in more and more and more. And you see, when all is said and done, that's really the amazing thing, is the fact that we have Jesus. I'm going to invite the band to come out and lead us in a song so you can think about this concept of repentance and see if that's where you are today. But let me say one thing, because the most important thing as they're coming up to play is this, and to sing for us is this, that Jesus himself, the God of the universe, became one of us. And the Bible says in Philippians, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The very reason you and I can even be forgiven, the very reason you and I even have a prayer is because the God of the universe had humility. I mean, think about that for a minute. The God of the universe humbled himself. If Jesus Christ could make himself nothing, could humble himself, what's your excuse? What's my excuse? Think about that. In these few minutes we have between you and God. Do you need to repent? Do you need to come to a place where you say, God, I give up? for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.